This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey folks, it's Ben here with a couple of new quick announcements. We have a new Twitter handle that's probably more in line with the current direction of the show. It's at Kickass News Pod instead of the previous name at KA Politics. If you're already following us on Twitter, you don't need to refollow us or change a thing. It'll just update our name in your Twitter feed. So don't be alarmed when you see at Kickass News Pod. It's just me. Also, we're in the midst of raising our production budget for 2017, so if you enjoy the show, I really hope you'll consider showing your support by making a donation to GoFundMe.com slash KickAssNews. And even if you can't do that, another way you can support the podcast is by patronizing some of our great sponsors. Be sure to use the links and promo codes mentioned in our advertisements or get them from our sponsor page because that lets our advertisers know that you're a Kickass News listener. And it also gets you in on some great offers and big-time discounts just for fans of the show. Finally, if you have a moment, please take our listener survey at podsurvey.com slash kick. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass News. Earlier this month, Donald Trump made what should have been a congenial phone call to Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. Ever the diplomat, President Trump blasted Turnbull over a refugee agreement and boasted about the magnitude of his electoral college win before cutting the call short and saying, quote, This was the worst call by far. I wanted to get some perspective on what this strange incident means for the U.S.-Australia relationship and broader concerns in the Pacific, so today I'm talking with Prime Minister Turnbull's predecessor, Kevin Rudd. Kevin Rudd served as Australia's 26th Prime Minister from 2007 to 2010, then as Foreign Minister from 2010 to 2012, before returning as Prime Minister in 2013. He led Australia's response during the global financial crisis, reviewed by the IMF as the most effective stimulus strategy of all major economies, and was a co-chair of the G20, which prevented the global economy from spiraling into depression. As Prime Minister and Foreign Minister, Mr. Rudd was a driving force in expanding the East Asia Summit to include both the U.S. and Russia in 2010, having already launched an initiative for the long-term transformation of the EAS into a wider Asia-Pacific community. He was a member of the U.N. High-Level Panel on Global Sustainability and drove Australia's successful bid for a non-permanent seat on the U.N. Security Council from 2012 to 2014. Now he serves as chair of the Independent Commission on Multilateralism, where he led a review of the U.N. system. He served as a senior fellow with Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government, where he conducted a major research project on U.S.-China relations. He's a Distinguished Visiting Fellow at Chatham House, Distinguished Statesman for the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a Distinguished Fellow at the Paulson Institute, and he was recently appointed to the Concordia Leadership Council. Mr. Rudd is currently the founding president of the Asia Society Policy Institute, a think-do tank dedicated to second-track diplomacy to assist governments and businesses on policy changes within Asia and between Asia, the U.S., and the West. 
Today I'll talk with Mr. Rudd about that phone call between President Trump and Mr. Rudd's successor as Prime Minister, as well as Trump's exit from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, what that means for the other partner nations, including Australia, and what a new Pacific trade bloc with China instead of the U.S. might look like. We'll talk about Trump's Florida holiday with Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, his phone call with the Chinese President Xi Jinping, and his sudden embrace of the One China policy. We'll cover a range of security issues, from a nuclear North Korea to China's man-made islands in the South China Seas. Plus, what Australians don't want you to know about how to throw a boomerang with former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd in just a moment. Kevin Rudd served as Australia's 26th Prime Minister from 2007 to 2010, then as Foreign Minister from 2010 to 2012, before returning as Prime Minister in 2013. More recently, he served as a senior fellow with Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government, where he conducted a major research project on U.S.-China relations, Mr. Rudd is also a Distinguished Visiting Fellow at Chatham House, Distinguished Statesman with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and he was recently appointed to the Concordia Leadership Council. Kevin Rudd joined the Asia Society Policy Institute as the inaugural president in January 2015, where he currently continues to serve as president. Mr. Rudd, thank you for joining me. Good to be with you on Kick-Ass Radio. How do you pronounce that in American? Kick-Ass? Uh, Kick-Ass News, Kick-Ass Radio, any way you like. How do you say in Australia? Uh, I think we'd say kick-ass. Yes, right. So <laughs> I, get, I, get, I get the sense of what you're okay. on about. Uh, semantics aside, all I know is that my girlfriend just returned from Australia and told me not to call you a bogan. <laughs> well, Apparently that's not a nice thing to say. So we have a very rich uh, dialect of English, which yeah. we could... Um, shock most of your listeners with but uh, it's a family audience so off you go well you know speaking of shocking i guess we'll jump right into the elephant in the room your successor as prime minister malcolm turnbull reached out to donald trump shortly after the election he pointed to similarities between the two of their business backgrounds and he said he and trump shared a similarly pragmatic approach to solving problems then two months later he had what was widely reported as a combative phone conversation with President Trump. In fact, Donald Trump called it his worst call so far. <laughs> After such a promising start, do you think Trump's tone caught him off guard? Well, the bottom line is the Australia-U.S. relationship is a very old one. Yes. Um, I think 13 Australian prime ministers, 13 American presidents, uh, Look, we've been through uh, a few challenging times before. This is uh, quite minor in the context of the whole sweep of history. Uh, we've had different views on Vietnam from time to time, different views on Iraq from time to time. Uh, this is quite a small matter. I would hope, though, in terms of the future of the relationship, particularly among close allies and friends, that it's always conducted with uh, private and public civility. Uh, but uh, we're both old enough and ugly enough as robust democracies <laughs> to be blunt with each other as well, at least in private. Well, you know, from everything that I know about the Australian Parliament, 
I'm assuming that Aussie politics ain't badminton. It's a, a full contact sport, would you say? Yeah, it's full contact sport, but unlike you guys, we don't even bother with the body armor. So uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, it's serious uh, football, and uh, we tackle to hurt. <laughs> would it, would it be fair to say that Mr. Turnbull can go toe to toe with our famously ill-tempered president? Well, listen, uh, Mr. Turnbull and I don't have the best of relationships <laughs> because he's a centre-right prime minister, and I was a centre-left prime minister. But, you know, just looking, standing back from it all, uh, both countries and I think all Western democracies are trying to deal with the same sort of challenges at the moment, uh, getting real stuff done on climate change, getting real stuff done on trade, getting real stuff done on security solutions to hard problems. Uh, I really think, you know, everyone's just got to kind of grow up a bit, push all that to one side and get down to the, the guts of it all, which is how do we fix uh, problems which mean real things for real people. Well, as Prime Minister, you dealt with two U.S. presidents, I believe, George W. Bush and Barack Obama. Would you say that the relationship was fairly healthy during your tenure as Prime Minister? Yeah, always healthy and strong, but with disagreements. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, uh, right from the get-go of the Iraq War, uh, we opposed the Iraq War, although we were in opposition at the time. Uh, and I, as leader of the opposition, I committed the Australian government to, if we, if we were elected to government, to withdraw our troops from Iraq. Now, that put me on a collision course with American policy and with President Bush. He didn't like it, came to Australia, kind of said so, not long before the election, which I then turned around and won. So that's kind of what you describe in diplomacy as an awkward moment <laughs> when the, the guy whose policies you've been bagging suddenly ends up as your, um, as your uh, political colleague across the Pacific. But uh, what we're able to do, uh, notwithstanding that, is to manage it in a civilised fashion. So I hope mm -hmm. President Trump uh, can do the same with uh, my success as Australian Prime Minister. Politicians and leaders come and go. Uh, the relationship between states and nations are of a deeper and more fundamental importance, and we are temporary custodians. Another area where you and President Bush didn't agree was the Kyoto Protocols. Would you like to see that revisited? Well, with the Kyoto Protocol, um, there were two standout nations when I was elected who refused to be part of uh, the global UN-based uh, response to climate change. Uh, one was the good old US of A under President Bush, and the second was... Um, the then Conservative-led Government of Australia. I was elected on a platform to ratify Kyoto. I did it as my first act as Prime Minister, then flew to the Conference of the Parties being held in Bali in Indonesia and handed over to the Secretary-General of the United Nations. That left the Americans alone in a room um, <laughs> and a minority of one. But as partly a reflection of the nature of the relationship and because I liked the United States, I then invited the American delegation who had no friends over to our room for a beer and, got, and, and opened lots of beers for all of them personally <laughs> as prime minister of the country. And this so, is President George W. Bush? This was his, his delegation. Who doesn't drink beer? No, no, no. This was his, this was his delegation. Oh, okay. oh run, his delegation. Run, run okay. at quite a senior level. But, okay. uh, it's kind of how you manage disagreements within yeah. the, the wider family. Yeah, well, there are worse ways to do things, I suppose. Um, president Trump today met with Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Uh, it was his second face-to-face -face meeting with a foreign leader after British Prime Minister Theresa May. 
Do you think that we can read something into that? Well, uh, Japan is one of uh, America's major allies in the Pacific. It's also the third largest economy in the world. Um, don't know if President uh, Trump enjoys sushi or not, but um, <laughs> uh, Japan is a critical relationship. And when uh, President Trump has junked the tr um, Trans-Pacific Partnership with a trade deal, which Japan had signed, signed on to, at some domestic political cost to itself, then there was a bit of tension in the air. But the other Japanese interest was to see President Trump walk back on his comments during the campaign uh, that uh, Japan could one day consider going nuclear itself to attend to its own national security needs. Right. Why should America attend to that? I think the last, the second of those two has been put to bed. It was put to bed during Abe's first meeting with President Trump uh, before Trump was sworn in. On the other one on trade, let's see what this um, two days, I think one in Washington and one down in Florida, um, mm -hmm. are going to produce. So it'll be interesting to see the uh, what the flies on the wall have got to say about that meeting. <laughs> and there do seem to be a lot of flies on the wall this time around. Well, it's they kind they of seem interesting. to be very chatty flies in this well, administration. I'm not, a, I'm not a journalist, but I've got to say, <laughs> I pick up my morning papers, the Post and the Times and others, and basically see what happened in Washington the previous day at a level of forensic detail which would have frightened me if I was in <laughs> office myself. Prior to his meeting with the Japanese Prime Minister today, yesterday Trump had what he said was a quote-unquote cordial phone conversation with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Uh, Beijing released a statement calling the two nations, quote, cooperative partners who could push bilateral relations to a historic new high. Is that wishful thinking on China's part, or do you think that phone call was a pretty good start? Well, the good thing about the conversation is it finally put to bed the question of America's position on the One China policy. Mm -hmm. For the benefit of your listeners, the One China policy has been around since effectively the 1970s. It was the basis upon which uh, diplomatic normalization occurred in 79 under the Carter administration. Um, and it was something to which the US administration was building after the 72 visit by Nixon and Kissinger. Essentially, that anyone recognizing the People's Republic of China uh, recognizes uh, Beijing as the legitimate government of all China, uh, and that by inference includes Taiwan. So when in the last uh, couple of months, uh, candidate Trump and then uh, President-elect Trump uh, threw uh, the one China policy up into the air and said, it's just another negotiation with the Chinese, uh, it really freaked people in Beijing out. Um, and the problem for the rest of us is that it's kind of the foundation stone upon which you have all other discussions with the Chinese about mm -hmm. everything else. So in this conversation on the phone with President Xi Jinping, uh, it's clear uh, from the statement from the administration that um, the US president has made it uh, uh, abundantly uh, clear that uh, he now accepts the legitimacy of the one China policy. But everything else in that China-US relationship, whether it's trade, whether it's investment, whether it's currency, South China Sea, North Korea, they can now talk about and get into in a substantive way. And I hope that happens sooner rather than later. So if he hadn't walked that back, that would have been a deal breaker for everything else. Yeah. Do you watch South Park? <laughs> yeah, I do. There's a great song in South Park uh, from one of them. Uh, which has this refrain, dum-dum-dum-dum-dum. That's what it would have been. <laughs> I think we might be hearing that refrain a lot over no, the no, next No, no, that's what it years. would have been had the president not clarified. Yeah. 
And, uh, and I'm glad the president now has clarified. So now that he has, uh, does China take him at his word and declare this a victory? I think the Chinese are too smart for that. Uh, <laughs> the uh, Chinese domestically would have regarded non-acceptance of the One China policy as a very difficult issue within their domestic politics, um, impossible to manage, frankly. Uh, so I think what they want to do is just get down to business, mm-hmm. and I think uh, this is the right way to go. So the next step is when do they meet and what's the working agenda and can they produce something on the core things that matter, on bilateral trade policy, on bilateral investment policy, on how do we deal with the different strategic perspectives on the South China Sea and what about the granddaddy of them all, the North Korean nuclear program. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump has talked to a number of world leaders and it was glaring by omission that he hadn't yet spoken with the president of China if he hadn't made that phone call before meeting with Japan today, would that have been taken as a significant slight by the Chinese government? Not quite. Um, the reason being is that there was a brief congratulatory call between uh, he and Xi Jinping okay. uh, within a week or so of the election. Um, but obviously with a couple of days of quality time being spent in um, D.C. and uh, down uh, on uh, Mar-a-Lago, Mar-a-Lago <laughs> in, uh, in Florida. Uh, and given the complex and often competing relationships with, between the US and China and Japan, uh, it was the right time. And I congratulate the president uh, in doing so, in clarifying uh, the position on the One China policy, and more importantly than having a substantive call Mm-hmm. Uh, with President Xi Jinping on the phone. Much to discuss uh, between the two of them, but frankly, much to resolve. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just going to be jaw, jaw, jaw. Uh, it actually has to be uh, more substantive than that. Uh, if it's not substantive and solving core problems, then what we do want to avoid is war, war, war. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about another significant move that President Trump made uh, shortly after the inauguration, of course, scuttling the TPP, which was really already dead in the water. You've spent a good amount of your time promoting trade. As prime minister, you worked on expanding the East Asia Summit into a wider Asia-Pacific community. Um, Given your efforts, did the U.S. rejection of the Trans-Pacific Partnership sting a little? I think for friends and allies and partners of the United States in the Asia-Pacific, the answer would be yes, Um, because each of them had invested their own domestic political capital in signing up to this thing. And secondly, because uh, everyone concluded, including the then US administration, this was not just good for the region, it was good for the United States as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, we think uh, that uh, it would have been better to continue President Trump has now made the call. It's dead and buried. Um, I don't think it's even comatose anymore. (laughs) Um, I don't think there's a pulse there. Um, And uh, I see early signs of rigor mortis setting in. So the question is what replaces it? And uh, we need now to focus a lot of our policy effort on the two other proposals on the table, one called a free trade area for Asia and the Pacific. Its acronym is FTAP. And the other is called RCEP in the alphabet soup, which which makes up trade policy. And that is uh, the uh, regional uh, cooperation uh, on uh, economic partnership in the the region as well. 
uh, we've got to make sure that those agreements are not just paper, political, diplomatic agreements, but they mm-hmm. actually substantively increase activity. Well, that's where the ball now lies, and we at the Asia Policy Institute are about to release a um, major policy discussion paper on this in uh, Washington in the month or so ahead. Um, is it a foregone conclusion that in the absence of U.S. involvement in any type of an agreement that it would have to involve China? Well, my argument to uh, the Obama administration at the beginning of the TPP negotiations was this. Uh, You've got to leave the door open to the Chinese. Mm -hmm. Uh, Otherwise, it'll come to bite us on the backside. (laughs) And, uh, And to be fair to the Obama administration, they did. Um, and as of the presidential election, our Chinese friends were beginning to accommodate the possibility of signing on to the TPP themselves. Uh, this would have been a huge boon for the global economy, the regional economy, because it would invite greater access to China's markets for the signature states than was uh, hitherto the case. So um, I think uh, the big question now is to make sure that whatever happens, we seek to ensure that um, neither China nor America are cut out. Far better they're both in there together. Mm -hmm. Uh, Trade doesn't prevent wars, but trade can help reduce the likelihood of wars. Mm -hmm. Given the concessions that the other countries would have to make to China on issues like government subsidies, Um, I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming that the deal would be significantly less palatable to Australia and the other countries than the TPP would have been. Am I right? Well, TPP was comprehensive, dealt with Mm -hmm. trade, dealt with investment, and on trade it was high ambition. Everyone usually has their own what we describe as taper, that is the point at which they finally expire their (laughs) protectionist uh, vapor trail. (laughs) Probably my best way of putting it. Um, but it was, you know, it was a deal, and uh, it, these are hard to pull together. I think opening it up again in order to provide greater opportunities for the uh, admissibility of state subsidy, direct or indirect, uh, will be difficult for the other parties. Mm-hmm. Not impossible, but difficult. Because when you have such a large state-owned sector in the Chinese economy as represented by Chinese state-owned enterprises, about 20, 25% of total production, uh, this is not sort of just of academic interest. It's, it's big. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back to talk more with former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd when we come back in just a minute. So it's a new year now, and there's no better time to launch an online business or expand your online presence for your existing business, and GoDaddy.com wants to help. GoDaddy's mission is to radically shift the global economy toward life-fulfilling independent ventures, helping their customers kick ass by giving them the tools, insights, and the people to transform their ideas and personal initiatives into success. GoDaddy is the world's largest technology provider dedicated to small business and the largest domain registrar with over 62 million domain names under management and big savings over other registrars. 
Their award-winning 24-7 support will help build your online business and give you everything you need to get up and running. Whether you have a new idea or an established business, the key to success online starts with a great domain name, and GoDaddy is trusted by 13 million customers. That's more than any other registrar. And right now, my listeners can get a special discount on a GoDaddy domain if you just use my offer code KICK30 at checkout to get 30% off new purchases. That's GoDaddy.com and offer code KICK30 for 30% off. You don't have to spend a fortune on a domain. Just go to GoDaddy.com and type in the offer code KICK30 at checkout for 30% off and launch your online business today. And now, back to the podcast. Following the demise of TPP, is there a fear among your partner nations in the Pacific that this may signal a broader forfeiture of America's role in the region and embolden China to make more aggressive moves, for instance, in the South China Sea? You know something, the Asia-Pacific region uh, abhors binaries. Um, <laughs> Uh, nature abhors a vacuum. Our region ab abhors binaries. And the binaries uh, have uh, Beijing in the red corner and Washington in the blue corner. Uh, and most of us uh, have for a long, long time wanted to be able to uh, walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> and certainly uh, that's the way in which the Australian government has pursued its policy. I think the $6,000 question uh, for uh, the US administration uh, the Republican administration under President Trump, is what global leadership role does the United States now want and is willing to provide, and parallel to that for the Asia-Pacific region. I think the key thing, and this is uh, part of what I've been saying here today in my address here at UCLA, um, hosted by the Asia Society in um, Los Angeles, uh, is we now face a lack of clarity and much uncertainty on that. Well, nature also abhors uncertainty as much as it abhors a vacuum. Um, and the problem with uncertainty, whether it's in Europe or Asia, if people think there's going to be a big rewrite of geostrategic roles between Washington and Beijing on the one hand and Washington and Moscow on the other, then the other countries within those continents, uh, Asia and uh, Europe, begin to adjust accordingly and begin to anticipate that they may have to accommodate uh, the interests of other great powers like Russia and like China. Uh, now, we're not there yet, but uncertainty is a bugger. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said... It's a technical Australian <laughs> term in the Australian <laughs> International School of uh, Foreign Policy Analysis. <laughs> well, like I said, you were an advocate of free trade and recognized as one of the founders of the G20, which drove the global response to the 2008-2009 financial crisis and narrowly averted a global depression. Do you have concerns that if Donald Trump kicks off a trade war with China and other nations, a global recession might repeat itself? You have two ways of responding to that question. One is to look at, let's call it, the architecture of the global order. Then, mm -hmm. secondly, the real impact on the global economy of any particular measure. Let's go to the first one first. <clears throat> what are the arms of the current uh, international order apart from the state of great power relations between Washington, Beijing, and Moscow? 
Well, the arms of the international order are at a political level, the United Nations, at an economic level, a combination of uh, the World Trade Organization, the IMF and the World Bank, and then thirdly on global financial governance, the G20. That's the trifecta we've got. <clears throat> and also out here we've got international legal disputes mechanism, resolution mechanisms such as the International Court of Justice, the UN Tribunal on the Law of the Sea, etc. That's... This is the rule-based system we've been putting together for the better part of three-quarters of a century. Now, um, the US has been essential to the creation of all three sets. Uh, the Bretton Woods institutions, uh, the GATT, the IMF, the World Bank, all came out of Bretton Woods in '44, uh, when you had representatives of the Roosevelt administration and the British administration at the time, and together with others sorting out what would be the rules of economic uh, governance in the post-war period so that we didn't resort to protectionism like we did in the 30s. If America withdraws from that through uh, either indifference to the WTO or taking protectionist measures itself and triggering trade wars, I think we're in a world of pain. Secondly, on the United Nations, much criticised, but if the UN wasn't there and the UN Security Council wasn't there, and the body of six to 700 items of international treaty law which fall under the United Nations system wasn't there, then we do resort to law of the jungle. Once again, this is largely an American construct in '45. the work having been done in State Department, policy planning staff, etc., while the rest of us were just trying to win the war. Um, now, if America was to pull the plug on that, you're also pulling another plug on American soft power in the world. Roll it forward to the G20... Uh, in the context of the financial crisis of 2007-8, <clears throat> when a certain substance was really going to hit the global fan, um, we um, had to uh, quickly innovate and find an institutional mechanism globally which could deal with uh, staunching uh, the uh, further collapse of financial institutions. Uh, secondly, uh, injecting sufficient growth into the global economy through monetary and fiscal policy stimulus uh, to prevent a recession from going to a depression and then commission a whole bunch of uh, regulatory reform measures which would prevent or at least reduce the likelihood of another crisis. And that's being discharged by a body called the Financial Stability Board, which answers to the G20. Sorry if all that's too nerdy for your listeners, <laughs> but that's the background. But you know something? That's an American construct too. Yeah. So if the Bush, uh, sorry, if the Trump administration now says to itself, ah, uh, Dodd Frank, ah, uh, this is a, a terrible piece of financial engineering. Well, look, I can understand some of the criticism, but guess what? It's part and parcel of an American response and 20 other responses mm -hmm. by other, the other 20 major economies in the world, or 19 of them, to bring about a set of regulatory reforms to prevent a repeat of what flew out uh, uh, off, the, off the back of subprime in 0708. Um, and if you do that, you kiss goodbye to the G20. This is not mm. good for American soft power either. Yeah. Roll it together then, you kiss goodbye to those things and more generally say that America, as in the 20s, is repeating as withdrawing within its nationalist shell. Uh, bad for the world and I, in my judgment, bad for America, quite apart from a trade war and its capacity to radically undermine already fragile growth in the global economy. 
And going back to the UN, you drove Australia's successful bid for a non-permanent seat on the UN Security Council. And more recently, you had expressed some interest in running for UN Secretary General. Uh, what do you think are the biggest challenges facing the United Nations right now? Well, in the course of the last two years, uh, I chaired uh, an independent commission on the review of the UN multilateral system um, under the aegis of an organization called the International Peace Institute, which is a semi-UN body in New York. I spent two years of my time doing this. We had um, dozens of meetings around the world in the United States trying to work out the best way forward. Uh, we produced our report, by the way, for the benefit of your listeners, uh, at the uh, end of last year uh, called uh, Rebuilding Order in a, Frag in a Fragmenting World. Um, and it, it seeks to be a policy response to the broader set of problems I just was running through before. If you're interested, you can find a copy of it on the Asia Society website. Uh, 50, 60 pages, it's readable. I'm sorry, there are not enough pictures and there are no cartoons. <laughs> but the, the guts of it is this. For the UN to be effective in the 21st century, uh, it must do two core things. Uh, prevent rather than react all the time. Uh, act early to prevent uh, the early emergence of... Uh, of crises and prevent them from coming more full-blown armed conflicts, let alone full-scale wars, because prevention is much easier than the cure, uh, much more effective and much less costly. But not just in national security terms. It, that logic of prevention as opposed to reaction applies equally to sustainable development uh, and growing uh, the poorest economies of the world effectively rather than having to respond through humanitarian crises in, by way of reaction. Uh, in other words, building greater economic resilience around the world, which is what the Sustainable Development Goals are all about, but then applying it to the logic of uh, also uh, to climate change, far better to prevent than simply adapt to, a, um, uh, to global warming, which, as we know, can have um, horrifying consequences. So prevention rather than reaction. The second is a new culture of delivering results rather than simply being... Uh, an institution which prides itself in the integrity of its processes. It must become more results-driven. Back to footballing analogies, if I was playing Australian rugby, it's picking up the ball and putting it across the try line. In other words, it's all fine and dandy in a game of football, uh, but if no one has a touchdown, then frankly, what's it all about? <laughs> now, that's, uh, that's to cut through a bureaucracy which often feeds on itself as an eternal, eternally internally driven internal process as opposed to one which has held account for real results on peace and security, on growth numbers in the poorest countries and on bringing global temperatures down, not allowing them to go up. And I suppose if there was a third element for UN reform for the future, it would be to uh, ensure that on uh, sustainable development goals and the global poverty gap, that we harness global private capital in bankable projects in emerging economies rather than believing that there's some permanent um, sort of um, magic tree out there to be shaken every Thursday morning at seven while a whole bunch of money falls off it <laughs> and we just run around and sort of uh, throw it at one project or another. It ain't going to happen. UN, UN funding is getting less rather than more. Uh, the uh, balance sheets and the portfolio load of the major 
public international banks is already near exhaustion point. Uh, so therefore, this great public institutional bureaucracy of the UN has to increasingly marry itself with the world of private finance against common public policy objectives so that, yeah, the private finance guys earn a profit, but it's also achieving a public policy good. That's the third big reform. Um, I want to quickly address a couple of specific security issues in the Pacific. First of all, North Korea. Do you feel that China sufficiently has that situation in check? No, and nor do the Chinese think that. Um, really? And there's a reason for that. The DPRK, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, otherwise known to us as North Korea, uh, the guys in Pyongyang, Kim Jong-un, Inc., um, uh, they're a law unto themselves. And if you're a keen analyst of uh, China-DPRK relations, as I've been over the years, I worked for a while in our embassy in Beijing when I was a junior woodchuck in the Australian <laughs> Foreign Service, uh, then you know that there are limits to what China can do with a fiercely independent uh, North Korean political culture anchored in a deep-rooted uh, economic ideology called Juche or self-reliance. However, um, despite the fact that the Chinese have joined now in multiple rounds of UN Security Council-imposed sanctions against the North Korean regime, which have made them even more unpopular in Pyongyang than they were before, these have had no effect in changing North Korean behaviour. So what's the one card our Chinese friends have to play? Uh, the supply of energy, uh, where mm. North Korea is about 80% dependent on Chinese to supply of oil. Uh, that's critical for the North Korean military as well. How much uh, will China be prepared to apply that lever? We don't know. But we are in a dangerous environment where the technical capabilities of the North Koreans in terms of the number of nuclear bombs that they've got, probably somewhere between 10 and 15 now, mm. wow. to the possession of long-range rocketry, short, medium, uh, long-range ballistic missiles, which they've got, although the last category is um, not entirely accurate, and three, their ability to miniaturise the bombs and make them warheads on the tip of those uh, weapons, which we think they've got, we're getting much closer to midnight. So this is leaving all the political hyperbole to one side. As I've said here in, here in remarks in the United States today, here in LA, um, at the Asia Society, uh, the bottom line is this is a real uh, security threat. And it won't be fixed unless there is a deep level of engagement and common strategy between China and the United States. What's the way forward in resolving the matter of China's man-made islands in the South China Sea? You know, this one is uh, more complex uh, than um, most foreign policy and security policy questions on the planet outside the Middle East. <laughs> That's its own bucket of complexity. Um, but I'll just say this. You've got six or seven claimant states around this body of water. Chinese have an historical position going back to 1948. Most of the others have since their independence and in some cases pre-independence in the days of colonial administration of various of <clears throat> the countries of Southeast Asia. Secondly, up until about uh, four or five years ago, the way of resolving this was not to resolve it, just kick the can down the road. Mm -hmm. Sometimes not a bad thing to do in history. Uh, and instead uh, operate around some rules of the road about common resource extraction and usage called the Declaration of Conduct for uh, the use of resources in the South China Sea. But now, 
um, uh, China believing that others among the claimant seven, namely Vietnam and Philippines, have taken their own unilateral actions. The Chinese view is that they've taken their own retaliatory unilateral actions in, in claiming and occupying features and enhancing them. Of course, the Chinese have done this on a much grander scale than the other two. So how do you deal with it? I think uh, it's unlikely that the Chinese this year will seek to expand uh, further reclamation. Uh, when Secretary of State Tillerson said in his confirmation hearings that the United States would block Chinese resupply of these islands, um, I would think long and hard about that in terms of creating uh, unnecessary and potentially dangerous red lines. But thirdly, uh, what I'd strongly encourage both sides to do without public declaration is just deaccelerate military, naval and air deployments to the region, reduce the likelihood of metal-on-metal, metal, that is, uh, ships and planes running into each other just because there's too many of them in a confined space. And thirdly, once the temperature is down, as a consequence of that in 12 months' time, quietly resume the ASEAN-based negotiations on a code of conduct for common extraction of resources and kick the sovereignty can down the road by another 20 or 30 years. And as Deng Xiaoping used to say, leave it to a much smarter generation in the future <laughs> to fix this one. Before we go, I have a little bit of an Aussie problem that I'm trying to figure out. I didn't do it. Um, no, it's not you. But like I mentioned earlier, my lady friend just returned from Australia a couple of weeks ago, and she bought me this boomerang. Yeah. No matter how hard I throw this bloody thing, it never comes back to me. Can yeah. you tell me? Do you have any idea what I'm doing wrong here? Uh, yes, you're an American. Okay. <laughs> it's existential. It's existential. <laughs> so the, um, as a kid growing up, my father used to try and teach me how to throw a boomerang. I used to get them to come at least half back and once all the way back. But Aaron, Oh, so Aaron, this is not an uncommon problem then? No, we just don't tell it's you. Not me. We just don't often tell you that because <laughs> okay. we would prefer to have you feel bad about okay. your ability not to throw. But Indigenous Australians, uh, Aboriginal brothers and sisters, uh, they are terrific uh, at the use of these extraordinary uh, innovations, uh, which were their way of hunting and gathering for millennia. Yeah. Well, I guess I better watch some YouTube videos. Well, I appreciate the tip. Ozzy, 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 oi, oi, oi. Kevin Rudd, thanks for talking to me. Good to be on Kick Ass. Thanks again to Kevin Rudd for joining me on the podcast. You can learn more about the Asia Society Policy Institute at asiasociety.org. Visit his personal website at kevinrudd.com and follow him on Twitter at at Mr. K. Rudd. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. Don't forget to take our listener survey. It only takes five minutes at podsurvey.com slash kick. You can visit Kick-Ass News on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And be sure to recommend Kick-Ass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com slash kickassnews. Or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News.
Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.